0: i and this is Food 52's Burnt
1: Toast. Anybody who came to dinner in the Roosevelt White House would, of course, write letters about it to their family afterwards. It was a big deal to go and eat with the Roosevelts. And again and again, you read the same thing. They loved FDR. They were crazy about meeting Eleanor. And they went on and on about how dreadful the food was.
0: That's Laura Shapiro, culinary
1: historian. They described these uh, gray, dry, lifeless pieces of meat. They called it mutton. In fact, I've seen the menus. It was lamb, but it was so horribly overcooked that they all thought they were eating mutton. Time and again, you just read these uh, sad, bewildered reports on how awful the food was.
0: Ernest Hemingway had one, too, written right after his first visit to the White House.
1: He was traveling to the White House with Martha Gellhorn, whom he would later marry. And uh, as they were waiting for their plane in Newark, he saw that uh, she was scarfing down sandwiches. She ate three of them. He said, what are you doing? We're going to dinner at the White House. She said, everyone in Washington knows the rule. When you're invited to the White House, you eat before you go. And his report back... We had a rainwater soup, followed by rubber squab, a nice wilted salad, and a cake some admirer had sent in, an enthusiastic but unskilled admirer.
0: Laura's new book, What She Ate, is about six women and what their relationships with food say about them. It's full of the stories that have been missed or written out of the biographies that came before it. Eleanor Roosevelt was, yes, known for serving the worst food in White House history. In addition to that unskilled Ed Myers cake, the table was often set with leathery roasts and bland chowders, seafood surprise, and something called Eggs Mexican, an otherwise completely not-Mexican creation made of rice, eggs, and bananas. These were the most public years of Eleanor's life, and because of that, this is what we think we know about her. She had horrible taste and not the slightest clue about flavor. Getting ready to talk to Laura, I asked a friend what she knew about Eleanor and food. She quickly replied, she's the one who is indifferent to pleasure, right? I'm not sure we'll ever be able to explain eggs Mexican, but when it comes to Eleanor, there's a lot we missed. So first, Eleanor was certainly blamed for the horrifying White House food, but she's of course not the one doing any of the actual cooking. She's mostly overseeing the menus. The only cooking Eleanor did do was a Sunday ritual she had with her family, one that lasted for 40 years. With everyone gathered around the table, she'd make a show of scrambling eggs and cream in a chafing dish. But the day-to-day cooking in the Roosevelt White House, that high honor went to Henrietta Nesbitt.
1: Mrs. Nesbitt is famed for being the most loathed cook in White House history. She was a homemaker in Hyde Park, New York, which is where Eleanor Roosevelt met her. And she hired her to do some baking. And then when FDR became president, she thought, oh, no, here her source of income was going to dry up. She writes about this in a memoir. She was uh, sitting in her kitchen one day, and who should come walking up the path, but Eleanor, wife of the soon-to-be-inaugurated president, came in and said, Mrs. Nesbitt, I need a housekeeper in the White House. I don't want some professional. I want you. I want a woman that I know and that I trust. And Mrs. Nesbitt quoted that line very carefully because she was so heavily criticized for the next 12 years for being in fact a rank amateur you just you can see her being very careful when she wrote that memoir to say they wanted me she chose me she knew exactly what she was getting and she chose me
0: Laura describes the White House as a private hotel under public scrutiny. On any given day, there were guests for tea, dozens of people over for meals. There were last-minute guests, overnight stays. There were cabinet dinners to put on. And that's on top of maintaining the dozens of rooms in the White House and keeping the sitting president and his family happy.
1: FDR, who was a real foodie, he had been raised in this estate in Hyde Park by a mother who knew a lot about food. She used to write out their menus in French by hand. She always hired very good cooks and they grew everything there and they had a farm and all the cream and beautiful produce and great recipes. He had a fine palate and strong preferences. He's getting this. Unbelievable stuff that he cannot bear to eat. There's wonderful descriptions. He'll get a tray in his office. Something comes in with, you know, one of these big domed covers. (laughs) And he he lifts it up, and he looks at this thing, and he sort of rolls his eyes. People describe this, puts the cover back on, goes back to work. (laughs) He really, really disliked the food. And he did not love Mrs. Nesbitt. And he was patient. He would let it go for a while. And then every now and then he would just erupt and he would erupt to Eleanor or he would write a note and just say, I can't stand this. I've had liver and beans for the last four days for lunch. Please do something. And then Eleanor would say to Mrs. Nesbitt, OK, we have to think of some different recipes. They didn't really think very hard because neither of them really took it seriously.
0: So but he never just waved his arms in the air and said, make it stop. We need to fire her.
1: He said to friends and to family members that he couldn't stand the food, and he joked as he was thinking about running for a fourth term. He joked, you know, well, the main reason to run is that I'll finally get to fire Mrs. Nesbit. He never did, and he never pressured Eleanor to fire her. There's a lot of uh, theories and back and forth about why that was Basically, he was keeping a little bit of hands off. He had given Eleanor the domestic side of the White House to run, and that was kind of her purview. And he wasn't going to interfere, and it was a kind of sensitive issue between them. He left that in her hands, and she allowed him to get away with what was a sensitive relationship. FDR's closest personal assistant was this dashing, charming, very smart woman named Missy LeHand who was with him all the time. They were very close. She was in many ways the wife that he didn't really have in Eleanor. When he had his favorite cocktail hour, she was right there kind of leading the gossip and charming people. She was very good at what she did, and FDR really couldn't get along without her and certainly didn't want to get along without her. Eleanor let all that stay in place And in return, she exacted a little bit of revenge. She kept the food as awful as it was, whether it was conscious or not. She wasn't about to give in to his appetites. His appetites had been a problem in one way or another since that very awful time in their marriage when she discovered he had been having an affair with Lucy Mercer. He was a man who loved women, loved life. His wandering hands were famous. And Eleanor lived with all that and she put up with all that. But she had one little sphere of power that she exerted and and it came in through the food. I I thought I think of it that way. I think of it as as these helpings of all her feelings. And that's what's under that big cover when he lifts the lid and sees these awful looking dishes and puts the cover back on. That's what he's getting.
0: Blanche Cook first wrote about the food as revenge theory. But there's another one. More on that right after this. I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Gastropod, and it's an award-winning show that looks at food through the lens of science and history. Listen to stories like the science behind how bubbles get into seltzer or about how citrus is actually connected to the mafia. Cynthia Graber and Nikki Twilley host, and you can find it in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Go subscribe now so you can listen on your next commute.
1: Eleanor uh, in the 1920s discovered the home economics movement, which we think of, I certainly think of, as these awful things that went on in seventh grade where you had to make carrot and raisin salad and you had to sew things called uh, hostess aprons. That was home economics when I was in seventh grade. When Eleanor discovered it, it was a very lively, kind of frightening but powerful in its own way reform movement that had started at the end of the 19th century. And it was... uh, it was really a way for women to push into careers in science that they might never have a chance to get into. It was a very two-edged sword. What they were carving out for themselves were careers that were labeled female, and they were never going to get out of that box. But at least it was a career. So if you wanted to uh, to do chemistry, if you wanted to do biology, if you wanted to do engineering, if you wanted to do Anything with the word science anywhere around it when you were an undergraduate, they took one look at you being a female and gave you a one-way ticket to the home economics department, and that's where you ended up. It, uh, it was dispiriting for many women, but it was liberating f- for some others.
0: Eleanor was in the camp who was liberated by this movement. Back in 1920, she'd signed up for cooking classes. She would go to her instructor's house, make a dinner, and leave it for them to eat, which might sound a little strange, but for Eleanor, it wasn't really about the food. It was about conquering the domestic sphere. It was about figuring out how to be herself. And even if she wasn't sure she'd ever get to enjoy it, it was about understanding female independence.
1: She got to know the department up at Cornell in New York State, which was one of the leading Programs in the country and uh, very progressive. They were feminists. They were great people, but they had this idea that the home was a laboratory where you could use skills of science and management and organization. and And the modern American home would not be this kind of messy pit of sentiment and tradition and doing things the way your mother do it. It would all be forward looking and clean and efficient and and uh, the food would not would not be, you know, the pies that Americans used to eat three times a day and these uh, things that they learned from their grandmothers. They The food would really be a, a specific portion of nutrients. Everybody needed this much protein, this much carbohydrate, this much fat. And that was kind of the ideal menu planning was that all the numbers were in the right place. So she got to know this. And everything made sense to her. The kind of food that came out of these laboratory kitchens at Cornell, that's what electrified her. That's what she thought was the great cooking of the future. It's the, it was the food that Americans should be eating. Remember, this is the Depression. And she had a very strong sense of the millions and millions of families who were living on extremely small budgets. So she thought when she got to the White House, let's be a kind of demonstration dining room for the country. will show this food. will show people like us eating it. And that will teach and inspire and be a model.
0: He wasn't that vocal about it, but FDR didn't really agree with his view. Though there was somebody else in the equation Eleanor had to consider.
1: Eleanor really married two people. She married FDR and she married his mother. His mother was part of the package. She was with them until the day she died. And she represented and lived a kind of life that kind of made Eleanor's blood run cold. It was very luxurious, and the food was wonderful, and it was all to tempt the gourmand. And Eleanor just wasn't like that. And she deeply resented her mother-in-law, for exerting such pressures on the household, Sarah had decided where FDR and his new bride would live. When Eleanor started having her children, she had five eventually, Sarah was able to spoil the kids and win their loyalty. And, uh, and she was kind of a shadow over Eleanor's life. On and off, they were close for many years, But always with this awful feeling on Eleanor's part that she was being hemmed in, she was being owned and controlled by somebody else. So her whole feeling about this marriage was that she was being crowded out of it even before she knew about Lucy Mercer.
0: After the affair came to light, FDR's mother threatened to cut him off financially if he divorced Eleanor. So he didn't do that, even though Eleanor told him that she didn't want to try to keep the marriage alive. At this point in 1918, FDR was not yet president. And back in that day, there was pretty much no going on to the White House if you were divorced.
1: So he agreed to give up Lucy Mercer. We now know that it didn't happen, but um, but that was the condition, and they got back together and tried with a lot of sincerity on both sides to create a better, uh, a better partnership. And of course, politically, it was a very dramatic and very important partnership. Personally, they were very, very far apart for the rest of their lives.
0: That feeling of being hemmed in never quite left Eleanor. There wasn't a ton of room for her to think about herself or for her to actually be herself. Later on in her book, Laura makes a very important point that the reputation Eleanor gained during her White House years has everything to do with the context it happened within.
1: She wrote several memoirs, and in one of the earliest ones, she talks about going to a British boarding school for a couple of years. They were were some of the happiest years of her life. And the school happened to be run by a French woman who was very attuned to food she took a liking to eleanor and the two of them traveled and with this woman eleanor as a as a she's a teenager she starts to find food that um that she's never she's never tasted before she's she's in foreign countries and eleanor is experiencing life not just the food but the museums and the independence that she hasn't had she was brought up with this disciplinarian of a grandmother so she has a little food memory way back there when she um when she grows up but it gets it gets covered up she leaves it behind she grows up she comes back to the united states she becomes a debutante she she has an adult life she starts looking at those years of uh, of freedom and really enjoying life as a kind of luxury that you have to put aside when you take on adult responsibilities it really came to the fore most powerfully during those White House years. She had this image of somebody who had a very puritanical culinary life, and her children believed it, and and it was it was true to a certain degree. You see rays of sunlight coming when she leaves, when she's traveling outside the White House, she'll go to Seattle to give a speech. And she's oh, we had the most delicious dinner somewhere. And she will describe it in her column. Or somebody took her to a Chinese restaurant. I ate so much. I never ate so much in my life. Eleanor Roosevelt just glorying in overeating. Who knew? But she was outside the White House. She had her own little uh, cottage that she and some friends built on the grounds in Hyde Park, but separate from the main house. And she went there with friends as often as she could. She loved that little place. Anything she ate there was special and delicious, and she enjoyed it, and she luxuriated in it because she was surrounded by the people that she loved and cared about. The food story really split in two. There was a White House food story, grim, puritanical, and, and then there was an outside The White House Food Story, where you see a woman who really had appetites, who really had senses, who had friends that she adored, and that was a woman who really knew how to enjoy life.
0: What do you say to the scholar who says, well, who cares what these women ate?
1: We all eat. It's the first appetite we have, I think, to ignore the food is to ignore one of the most elemental Passions in a life. We never hesitate to pay attention to where someone went to school. We would never hesitate to pay attention to who somebody fell in love with or what happened when they made this financial investment or lost money there. Anything with a dollar sign on it, we would pay attention to. Food is all those things. It has the emotions, it has the dollar signs, it has the politics. It has the education wrapped into it. It has the love wrapped into it. Food has all those things. When you ignore it, you're ignoring everything.
0: Laura Shapiro's book, What She Ate, comes out in July. But you can pre-order it on Amazon right now, and I really suggest that you do. This episode of Burnt Toast was produced by Gabrielle Lewis and me, Kenzie Wilbur. Thanks also to Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, the founders of Food 52, and to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Our ad and theme music is by Joshua Rule Dobson. Our logo is by Abby Lossing. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can leave us a review at iTunes. It really does help. Or you can get in touch. Email us anytime at burnttoastfood 52com We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening.